Well, folks, I'm glad to be here this evening and to take this uh, talk. I want us to read from God's Word. Uh, if you've got a sheet, the passage is on the back of the sheet. Uh, it's a, a short reading, and I could have read any number of passages tonight that uh, we really would have tied in with and in some senses summed up uh, the theme for tonight, which is uh, Christ alone, which we'll come to in a moment. But I thought that this passage from the book of Acts uh, was a, a good springboard uh, to use uh, into the topic. Uh, the disciples have been preaching about Jesus in Jerusalem. The religious leaders of the day, they didn't want them talking about Jesus as far as they were concerned. The only way to be right with God was through their religious system. And they had told the disciples that they weren't allowed to speak anymore uh, and were going to uh, charge them, bring charges against them and so on. And we read about this in Acts chapter 4. Uh, if you look at the back of your sheet, you'll see it. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of a, the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? So Peter and his companions had uh, healed a man who had been uh, lame for many, many years. And they're wanting an explanation of this. And Peter says, or sorry, Luke says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. My wife and I have been married 36 years and in the course of those 36 years we've had the privilege of visiting many different places on our holidays, uh, many with our kids as they were growing up, mainly in parts of Europe and then subsequent to that being able to go to uh, some other uh, lovely parts of the world, God's creation. One of the places that we haven't visited and if I'm spurred uh, at some stage in the future and if I am uh, able to save up enough, I want to go to Geneva in Switzerland. Uh, Geneva is, of course, uh, associated with the Reformers, and it's supposed to be a beautiful city. Uh, Geneva's motto is post tenebris lux. Uh, and I know that you're all Latin scholars, so you don't need me to interpret that for you. But in case any of you don't know what it means, it means after darkness, light after darkness light and it got that motto as a result of the fact that it was at the very center of the work of or the movement of the reformation in the uh, 17th century and particularly um, the uh, protestant uh, churches that emerged out of that reformation after the darkness light for centuries there was spiritual darkness throughout the whole of Europe 
And the reason for that was because the uh, church at that time had, as Mark said, buried the truth. People believed that you were made right with God and that you were guaranteed going to heaven if you did what the church told you. And the church, sadly, was not pointing people to Jesus Christ, but was pointing people rather to rituals and to penance and to all sorts of things that the church said were absolutely necessary for salvation. And in the midst of that darkness that prevailed, light began to shine uh, as a result of Martin Luther was one of the catalysts, him discovering great truths from the Bible that he discovered uh, showed that the way of salvation was not what had been taught for centuries, but rather it was what had been taught back in the days of Christ and the apostles and then For whatever reason, over centuries it had been lost and false teaching had come in. We're celebrating this year 500 years of that Reformation and of the light of the gospel spreading throughout the whole of Europe and indeed coming to our own island here. The question is this, is there a need for this to be emphasised again? Is there darkness, spiritually speaking, in Ireland today? Well, I would want to say to you that there there is. There's spiritual darkness in Ireland today, both north and south. And there are two things that have particularly contributed to that. One is the massive change there has been in people's worldview. Philosophically speaking, you could call it modernism. And if you just bear with me for two minutes, I'll explain to you what I mean by modernism. Basically, modernism says that there is no absolute truth. Truth is relative. Uh, And just because I think something is wrong, that doesn't make the thing wrong in itself. Because if someone else doesn't think it's wrong, then it's okay for them to do it. So, for example... If I thought there was nothing wrong with me living with my partner outside of marriage, then it's not wrong as far as I'm concerned. That's my standards. Those are my views. Someone else could say that it is wrong. And I can say, well, it may be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. There's no absolutes. There's nothing you can point to to say this shows that that's wrong. It's all relative. And so it's okay, for example, in... Ireland today for people to live together outside of the bonds of marriage. It's okay in Ireland today for two men to have sexual relations with each other, for two women to have sexual relations with each other. It's okay for people to have an abortion if they don't feel like having the baby they want because it'll inconvenience them or because it'll reveal that they've been in in, in, uh, an adulterous relationship or whatever. It's all relative. There's no absolute right or wrong. That's one of the things that has been happening in Ireland today. The second thing is immigration. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-immigration, but think about it. In Ireland, north and south, there has been a massive influx of people from other parts of the world. And with the influx of other people, there has been an influx of other religious beliefs. And so, for example, in Many towns and cities today, you'll have places where Muslims meet, where Hindus meet, where Jehovah's Witnesses meet, 
where Buddhists meet, and all kinds of religious ideas permeate our society. And the Jehovah's Witness will say, this is the right teaching. And the Buddhists will say, no, this is what God is like. And the Hindu will say, no, this is what God is like. And the Roman Catholic will say, this is what God is like. And the Protestant will say, this is what God is like. And the Muslim will say, no, this is what God is like. And there's all these different ideas about God. And Ireland has become a pluralist society. It wasn't like that years and years ago. It was predominantly a Roman Catholic society. It's not like that in the 21st century. It's a pluralist society. And many people who are Roman Catholic, at least in name and association, have no time for the church and they're imbibing the ideas and philosophies of today. And so what you find is that people today will say, well, uh, there are many different paths that lead to God. And as long as a person is sincere and following whatever religious belief they want, and they're really sincere about it and doing their best, then that path's okay for them. And they'll eventually experience blessing at the end of their life. Doesn't matter what path you choose, it could be the path of Hinduism, the path of Catholicism, the path of Reformed Presbyterianism, it could be the path of uh, Islam. All the paths ultimately lead to happiness at the end. And into this quagmire of religious belief, into this mishmash of religious views into this environment of deep spiritual darkness in Ireland today comes the clear, unmistakable, unashamed and completely exclusive message of the Bible. The message that was discovered, rediscovered 500 years ago amidst the spiritual darkness that was all over Europe at the time and the message that absolutely needs to be reaffirmed today. And that message is this. There is salvation, verse 12 of your reading, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if you were a Open your Bibles. If you haven't one with you, go home tonight and open it up just to show that I'm not making this up. John chapter 14 and verse 6. These are the words of Jesus himself, and it's Jesus that we're going to be thinking about. I am the way, and in actual fact, in the original Greek language in which the Bible was written, that's very, very emphatic. If you were to take it literally, it says, I, I am the way. Two eyes. You don't get that in English. I, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it was this great truth that, or one of the truths that was rediscovered at the time of the Reformation. It's often referred to as solus Christos, uh, Christ alone. And it's this that we want to look at this evening. I mentioned about the religious pluralism in Ireland today where you've got Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and all types and we're told there's a God of the Hindu and there's a God of the Buddhist and there's a God of the Muslim and there's a God of the Protestant and the God of the Catholic and so on. Let me read you a couple of verses just before I go any further. 
Isaiah 43 and verse 10. This is God speaking. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Chapter 45 and 21. There is no other God besides me. Chapter 45, verses 5 and 6. I am Jehovah. There is no other God. Besides me, there is no other God. So the idea that there's a Hindu God, and there's a Sikh God, and that there's a Muslim God, and that there's a Buddhist God, and a New Age God, and any other God that you want to name is quite simply wrong, according to the teaching of the Bible. There is only one true God. And that God, in the Bible, tells us he made all things. And to this God, the only God exists, each human being is ultimately accountable. And the God of the Bible tells us in the Bible that every single one of us are sinners. We weren't made like that. Originally, when human beings were made, they were perfect, but they sinned against God. And whenever the first human being sinned, the fountain of humanity became corrupted, and everything that came out of that fountain was itself corrupt. In other words, Adam and Eve had kids, and those kids shared in Adam and Eve's sin. They inherited their sinful, corrupt nature. And if you trace your family tree back, people like to trace their family tree back. If you trace it back, and if you could trace it all the way back, you'd find we're all related And we all go back to Adam and Eve. And all of us have the same nature that they had. A fallen human nature. And if you want me to prove that to you, it's very easy. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever had a sinful thought? Have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Have you ever coveted something? Of course we have. We've done all those things. Have we loved God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength? Of course we haven't. Basically what I'm saying is we're all sinners by practice and that's because we're sinners by nature. And God tells us in the Bible that because we've, obeyed, or because we've disobeyed him, because we've sinned many, many times, we are under God's wrath. God must punish sin and we, in a sinful state, are destined for hell. That's the message of the Bible. Now today people don't like this message. A lot of people will strongly oppose it. I'm not a bad person. Many people will choose not to believe it. But just because you don't believe something doesn't make that something untrue. Uh, I could say I don't believe that if I fell into six feet of water and stood at the bottom with my mouth open, I don't believe I would drown. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. I'm going to drown. That's just a fact. Well, it is a fact that we are under the judgment of God. And if we do not repent, and if we do not trust God's way of salvation, God will ultimately punish us. But then, that's not all the Bible says. The Bible says, even though we are sinners, God has provided a way by which our sin can be forgiven, and we can experience salvation. We can avoid going to hell, in other words. And that message from God is called the gospel, the good news. And he tells us that the only way that anyone can be made right with him is through 
his son Jesus. We're going to look at that under three headings in a minute, but let me just read to you simply what the Bible says. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21. The angel is speaking to Joseph, and he's told Joseph, Mary, who is a virgin, has conceived. She's going to have a child. The child's going to be a boy. And this is what the angel says. You will call his name Jesus. Now, the name Jesus is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament name Joshua, which means saviour. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. I mentioned John 14. I, I am the way. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Matthew 11 and 28. Come, this is Jesus speaking, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We read from Acts 4. There is, neither is there salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he's talking about Jesus. John 3 and 18. Whoever believes in him, the him there being Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. One person who stands between the sinner and God and who brings them together. Let's ask the question this evening then. Why Christ alone? Why Christ alone? I'm going to give you three answers to that that I hope will be helpful. First of all, Christ alone because Christ alone has been appointed by God to save sinners. Only Christ has been appointed by God to save sinners. We as human beings have sinned against God. And that being the case, it is God who determines if we can be reconciled to him, and if so, how we can be reconciled to him. If our sins can be forgiven, and how our sins can be forgiven. And the God of the Bible, the only God that there is, don't forget, makes it clear that he has given this work the work of saving sinners to only one person. Someone he's appointed to this work and that person is none other than his own dear son, Jesus Christ. Now the word Christ, I'm sure you know, it's not Jesus' surname like Robert Robb. Christ is our Lord's title. It means the anointed one. And it points to the fact that God has anointed Jesus to do a work. And if you go into the Bible, you'll find it right from the very beginning of the Bible. God promises that one day he's going to send someone who will deal with the problem of man's sin. Speaking to the serpent after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin and Eve says it was a serpent's fault and so on, 
God says to the serpent, and speaking to the serpent, he's speaking to the devil. He says, he's going to send one who is the seed of the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. What God was saying was this, that someone at a future date and time would be born of a woman and that Satan would attack this seed of the woman and he would certainly hurt the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would end up crushing Satan under his heel, so to speak. Then the Bible goes on, and throughout the Old Testament, both by pictures and also by a teaching of the prophets, it makes it clear that the problem of sin can only be dealt with through a sin offering. And a sin offering must involve the taking of a life because the penalty for sin is death. And so you find in the Old Testament the setting up of the Old Testament system of sacrifice. And when it comes to dealing with sins, animals have to be sacrificed. Their blood has to be shed. Why? Because God is giving us a picture of the fact that death is something that is tied in with the punishment for sin. And unless there's death, unless there's a shedding of blood, you can't have forgiveness. And this picture is pointing to something that's going to happen in the future. And you get a high priest who comes and takes a lamb and kills it and sprinkles its blood on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, symbolic of God's wrath being turned away from people. And then God, through the prophets, says that one day there's going to be a child born of a virgin, Isaiah 7 and 14, that this child is going to come from the tribe of Judah, he's going to come from the family of David, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, he even tells you the exact time he's going to be born, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, and that when he does come, that people are going to reject him, Isaiah 53, he's going to be despised, he's going to be rejected. And then when you come to the New Testament, we're told and it's made perfectly clear that the one who fulfills these Old Testament pictures and prophecies is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the one who was born of the Virgin Mary, the one who was born in Bethlehem, the one who is of the line of David, of the tribe of Judah. God sends his son into the world as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6. And he sends him into the world because he has appointed and anointed Jesus to be the one who will deal with the problem of man's sin. God himself come down from heaven in the form of a human being so as to become man's representative and man's substitute. And so we read in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and it's worthy of acceptance by everyone. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to be a great teacher. He was that. He didn't come to be a, a moral example. He was that as well. He didn't come to be a radical social reformer. He was that as well. But that's not why he came. He came into the world to save sinners. God appointed him to be a saviour. 
Now here's the thing. If God anointed and appointed and sent his own son into the world to save sinners, how can salvation be found in anything or anyone else? Will Muhammad save us? Will Buddha save us? Will Vishnu save us? Will the angel Moroni save us? Will Charles Taze Russell save us? Will Mary save us? Will St. Peter save us? Will a priest save us? Will a Protestant minister save us? No. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ alone has been appointed by God. But then secondly, Christ alone has secured a perfect righteousness from God. Now let me explain that. Whenever God made Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, they were perfectly righteous. There wasn't a thing wrong with them. They hadn't sinned. And in that state, they enjoyed perfect relationships and fellowship with God. Perfect. They sinned. And one of the consequences of that was God says, right, get out of the garden. And that was symbolic of God pushing them away, no longer able to really enjoy fellowship with God in and of themselves. That's man's state. Because man, in order to enjoy a right relationship with God and enter into fellowship with God, man must be perfectly righteous because God can't have fellowship with anything that is sinful. God is without any hint or trace of sin himself. And that being the case, he cannot have fellowship with anyone who is in any way sinful. Bible tells us that he's of purer eyes and even look on iniquity. In order for a human being to have perfect fellowship with God and to enter into a proper relationship with God and enjoy that relationship, that person would have to never have committed a sin and have lived their whole life from the day they were born until the day they die perfectly not just in actions but also in your thoughts in your desires in your words in your attitudes <clears throat> fail every one of us who of us would dare to say we've never committed a single sin especially whenever we understand that sin also includes our thoughts and our attitudes and our desires The Bible says even our good deeds are like filthy rags before God. How then can we ever be right with God and enjoy fellowship with God? Well, again, we come back to Jesus. Why did Jesus come into this world? He came into this world, first of all, to live on this earth as a man and to live a life of perfect obedience to God and while he was here on this earth he did that in every respect of his life at all times without exception he never committed a single sin if he had committed a sin he himself would have been under the wrath of God 
Listen to what John the Apostle says. Speaking of Jesus, he says, In him was no sin. Paul describes Jesus in this way. He who knew no sin. The writer of the Hebrews says this. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience, or what we call perfect righteousness. And he's the only person who has ever lived in this world who has done that. And this perfect righteousness that Jesus secures by his life of obedience, he then is willing to give and does give, the theological term for it is imputes or reckons to their account, he then gives that to every single man, woman, boy or girl who puts their trust in him as their saviour. So if you could imagine me coming in after working all day and I'm absolutely clarried. I've been on the farm and I'm just mucked to the eyeballs or I've been in the garage under a car and the oil has leaked and it's all over me. And I'm completely covered. And someone comes and puts on me something that hides all the muck and it is a spotless, perfect garment. That's what Jesus' life of perfect righteousness is and that is given to the repentant sinner. Listen to what the Apostle Paul thought about his own righteousness before he came to truly understand the gospel. He says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, in other words, for thinking that he's lived a good life, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, somebody very strict in observing the law. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He thought himself blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now listen to this. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm not depending on my righteousness, I'm depending on the righteousness that God has provided in his son Jesus and that comes, that is given to me by faith. By faith. Trusting in Jesus. In Romans chapter 1, we read these words, In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, from faith to faith. Romans 5 and 19, 
as through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam in the Garden of Eden, all of us sinners. Even so, through the obedience of one, Jesus, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. And whenever a sinner truly repents and looks to Christ alone as Saviour and trusts him, that man, that woman, that young person is clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And because they're clothed in Christ's righteousness, they are then able to enter into fellowship with God. Well, almost. There's another thing that's necessary, and this is the third reason why Christ alone. Christ alone, because he has been appointed by God, Christ alone, because he has secured a righteousness for sinners, and Christ alone, because he bore the punishment for sin. Jesus' obedience secures for the repentant, believing sinner the righteousness that he or she needs. But there's a problem. What about my sin? What about all the stuff that's underneath this garment? What do we do with that? God has to punish sin, doesn't he? The wages of sin is death. He must punish sin. He can't not. God can't simply turn a blind eye or pretend it didn't happen. I'm a grand. I have three granddaughters. And I have to confess there's times when the grandchildren do things and say, don't worry about it, don't worry. I'll not tell your mummy. God can't do that with our sins. He can't say, well, don't worry about it. His character is such that he just can't do that. He must punish sin. And it's here that you get to the core teaching of the gospel and of the Reformation because the reason God sent the Son into the world was in order that he would go to the cross and there pay the penalty for sin. The Bible clearly teaches us that Jesus was put to death on the cross. don't think any of us would deny that. History tells us that Jesus was put to death on the cross. You don't have to read it just in the Bible. Ordinary secular historians record the fact that it happened. But the Bible also tells us why he was put to death. It tells us what was actually happening when Jesus was being crucified. It tells us that Jesus at that time was fulfilling what was pictured in the Old Testament. He is the great high priest who comes before God with an offering for sin. But the offering that he brings isn't some animal that has been slaughtered. The offering that he brings is himself. And he offers up his own life as a sacrifice for sins. Jesus himself said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom was a payment that was made in order to let those who were enslaved go free. You and I are enslaved to sin, but Jesus paid what was necessary in order for us to be freed from sin. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming at the beginning of his ministry. And he says to Jewish people who were very familiar with the Old Testament, of course, he says to them, look, the Lamb of God 
And what would, they, what would the Jew have thought about? They would have immediately thought about the Day of Atonement and the lamb being killed and its blood being presented before God to show that the death had taken place so that the wrath of God could be turned away. John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, God foretold us, speaking in Isaiah the prophet and speaking of the Lord's anointed who would come, he says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement that has brought us peace was laid upon him and with his stripes we have been healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. First John 4 and 10 Here is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, propitiation, but it's easy to explain. Propitiation simply means turning away the wrath of God. He sent his son to be the one who would turn away the wrath of God from our sins. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Why Christ alone? Because he is the only one who has paid the penalty for sin. Millions of Muslims all over the world, millions of Buddhists, millions of Sikhs, millions of Hindus, millions of churchy people, whether they're churchy Roman Catholics or churchly Protestants, millions of New Agers and Jehovah's Witnesses, there is no other name under heaven apart from Christ so Jesus comes and he says to the people of his day I am the way no one no one comes to the father except through me now here's the thing either Jesus when he spoke those words was speaking the truth Or, there's two other options. Jesus was a totally deluded madman. Or, he was knowingly the greatest deceiver that ever walked this earth. There's the, there are the only three options. Either he was out of his head, and he needed to take him and put him in some sort of an asylum, or he was the greatest deceiver that ever walked this earth or he is the son of God sent by the father to be the saviour of the world and he is the only way by which our sins can be forgiven what's the answer he claims no one else can make us right with God Now, do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you have repented of your sins 
And if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your saviour and you're not looking to be anything else, your good works or what your church says you have to do or whatever, then rejoice. Because if that is the case that you've done this, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and your sins are forgiven and you're going to glory. In this religiously pluralistic age and country in which we live, it's not politically correct to stand in a public place and say every other religion in the world is wrong. Well, friends, that's exactly what I'm saying this evening. Every other religion in the world is wrong. And you can put that on YouTube. You can put it wherever you want. I don't care. It's wrong. There is only one way to God. And that way is not along the pathway of Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or Roman Catholicism or Protestant churchianity or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnessism or any other ism. There's only one way that leads to God and that road is cross-shaped. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? To have peace with God. To go home, to put your head in your pillow at night and to think to yourself, I have nothing to worry about. Not a thing. All my sins are forgiven. And if God was to take me this evening, I wouldn't have one qualm whatsoever about standing before him. And he says to me, why should I let you into heaven? Because you said... You promised God. And you can't go back in your word. You said, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. You said that, I believe it. And I have the assurance that I'm going to glory. I said earlier on, and with this I'll finish, people say every religion, no matter what road you take, it leads to God. That's true. I say amen to that. But every other religion other than Christianity will eventually lead you to a God who is your judge. A God who will punish. There's only one road that will lead you to a God who is a loving Father who when you die will welcome you to glory into heaven. And that's the road of the cross. And that is one of the wonderful truths that were rediscovered at the Reformation. Christ alone. And that message, friends, needs to be proclaimed up the length and breadth of this island. It needs to be proclaimed from Cork all the way up to Carrickfergus. It needs to be proclaimed from Donegal all the way down to whatever's down in the right-hand corner of Ireland. <laughs> My geography's not brilliant, but it needs to be proclaimed. Christ alone. And I hope and pray that you've seen that this evening. Amen. Okay, let, let's, let's pray together. Father, this is the most wonderful truth whenever we come to really understand it. So many people, Lord, in this island trying to earn your favour by trying to do their best. And many of them, Lord, have been 
blinded by the darkness that prevails in this land, the spiritual darkness of ignorance of gospel truth. Father, we would be just the same if our eyes had not been opened. And our prayer tonight from the bottom of our hearts, Lord, is that you would open the eyes of the people of Ireland, that they might see the beauty of Christ, that they might see that he is indeed the saviour of sinners and that faith alone in Christ alone brings that wonderful assurance of one day being welcomed into glory. Lord, may the truth that we've been thinking about not just be something that we know in our head, but that it might be something, O God, that has transformed our hearts and that has warmed our hearts this evening as we've thought about it. And to you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one true and living God, we give all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.